of nine programmes called Fiction at the Friary and on Campus. Recorded on location in UCC and at the Friary Bar in Cork City. We are standing inside the old college bar. Having now ceased trading, the landmark on-campus location was a lively campus feature for over 30 years. The bar was an important social space, a live entertainment venue, which gave a platform early in their careers to acts such as the Rubber Bandits, Walking on Cars, the Frank and Walters, and hosted the world-famous Cranberries as part of the Cork Rocks Festival in 1991. The bar frequented by members of the many clubs and societies was famed for its atmosphere, chicken rolls, and the quietness of Tom's Room, the smaller annex named in honour of an early manager of the facility. The old bar now finds itself about to be repurposed, contributing to the life of UCC in a new way. An increasing number of students on the autism spectrum are progressing to UCC every year and they often find the college environment, both physical and academic, to be challenging for a variety of reasons. To become a more inclusive environment for this cohort of students, the Office of the Deputy President of Registrar, together with the Students' Union, is developing the old bar space on Central Campus to create an autism-friendly space. The work will consist of the refurbishment of the bar into a sensory sensitive space for autistic college students. The proposed ground floor will consist of toilets, changing space and multifunctional room. The first floor will consist of a calm space, breakout spaces, sensory rooms and reception and respite rooms. I'm Danielle McLaughlin and I'm here with Madeleine Darcy having what is possibly going to be the last conversation that will ever be held in the old college bar at UCC. Madeleine, did you ever think when you were here in your student days that you would be back in the capacity of writer in the year 2019? Gosh, Danielle, um, I did not. And uh, it, it does make me feel uh, slightly old and at the same time uh, great because I suppose it just goes to show that um, people can start doing one thing in life and change course and change course again. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I would say to you know anyone who wants to do anything really, um, given the, the difficulties of sustaining a livelihood at the same time, it is always possible. Um, and I have to say, even though I've stopped writing a couple of times in desperation, I've always gone back to it again. It's something that I just feel I have to do. Um, but in my day, um, my parents had four children and they were very anxious, not having been to college themselves, to put their children through college. But they wanted us all to get jobs. That was the reason for it. So um, doing things like uh, English, was um, out of the question for me anyway um, and I would have loved to do English so I got the points for law and that seemed to be second best 
because criminal cases in the newspapers fascinated me because they were stories about real people and sometimes they were very odd and very eccentric. Um, however, when I started doing law in UCC in 1979, which is the um, same date that the extract I've read um, is um, set in, I actually spent a whole semester uh, going to lectures in English, French, um, modern Greek and philosophy. And then I realised I was in big trouble because I'd hardly been to any law lectures at all. And if I didn't pass the exams, I'd lose my grant. And if I lost my grant, I wouldn't be in college at all. And if I wasn't in college at all, I wouldn't be able to come up to the college bar and have lots of fun and drink and see bands and watch banned films, censored films, and have fun. So I stuck it out. And music features in your novel that you're currently writing and it features in so many of your short stories. Um, what bands do you remember hearing here in this bar? I remember um, particularly seeing you two here and thinking um, that I wasn't very impressed and that um, the lead singer wore very high heels and I wasn't really that keen on um, you two. Um, I've always preferred the undertones actually. So I was always interested in music, but particularly at the time punk, because we had a lot to be angry about then. Um, and I'm not actually a very destructive person, but I was very angry um, about uh, what I saw to be um, injustice in Ireland. Um, so 1979, um, no abortion, no vo divorce, no contraception, no gay rights, um, uh, no conversations about the things that were really going on. And I'm only mentioning this now because I think Ireland is uh, actually a wonderful place to live, but we have to remember that in the immortal words of ABBA, the history book on the shelf is always repeating itself. And we can see that with Trump in America, the pushing back against um, the Roe versus Wade decision and many other things, the lack of regard for um, climate change, Brexit in England, where um, uh, serious international uh, treaties are being disregarded. Um, it is very easy for things to slide back again. So has the environment of the college, this part of Cork, made its way into your fiction? It has. I lived in London for 13 years and so um, London and England has also made its way into my uh, fiction. And Cork is a wonderful place. The fish market, the uh, fish stall in the English market has made its way into my fiction. Um, I also did um, an MA in creative writing here in 2013 to 2014, um, which was interesting. and. Um, brought me back into the quad itself, which is beautiful. And how was that experience of coming back here to do a master's in creative writing, having been away from college for a while? Very strange, <laughs> given that I did law here um, and qualified as a solicitor. 
uh, afterwards to come back and um, uh, be trotting up to the English department was uh, very pleasant. I did find it quite difficult to write, um, to order as it were, to write uh, pieces that to fulfil various modules rather than to write my what I would necessarily um, instinctively write myself, but that is the nature of doing an MA and perhaps uh, a very important part of it. And I believe that when you started out writing short stories that Claire Keegan was a big influence on you and she was writer-in-residence at UCC at the time, I believe. Uh, the first workshop I ever went to and the first story I ever wrote was in 2005 and I was 45 and a friend of mine had told me that Claire Keegan was running workshops in UCC and that part of the wider community could attend. Um, and my friend said that somebody had just dropped out, so I rang UC and then I had to ring Claire Keegan and tell her why I wanted to write. Um, and, and what did you tell her? I told her that the rain was pelting down on the bad roof of my back kitchen and I was cooking pasta for my son and all I really wanted to do was to get the opportunity to write because I knew it was time. And for anyone who might be starting out writing now, can you offer any tips that you learned from those early workshops? I think you have to learn to read like a writer and to accept positive critique and try to understand it. Um, I would also say that for nervy people like myself, do not accept critique that is not helpful to you because you may also encounter that. Um, read, 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 read. I'm going to um, read a short extract from my draft novel. Um, and the reason that I'm reading this particular piece is that um, the beginning of my novel is set in 1979, which coincidentally or not is when I uh, began to study for a law degree in UCC. Um, and I didn't do very much study uh, because I spent quite a bit of time in this particular location, which is the um, old student bar in UCC. Um, we're all here now and um, coincidentally uh, or serendipitously uh, this is the last day that this bar will exist as such. We're surrounded by um, lots of uh, bits and pieces of wood and debris and an old safe and all sorts of things. The builders are coming in tomorrow and I'm feeling a little bit sentimental and sad really to see it go. So I'm going to read from my draft novel. It's a polyphonic novel. Had I known it was a polyphonic novel, I wouldn't have even started. Um, this is one particular character uh, that I'm very fond of. So the heading of this chapter is Mags Phelan, 1979. Mags Phelan, 1979. Mags is sitting behind the cash desk in Belinda's boutique watching the clock. It's quarter past five and she's dying to go home. There are no customers. 
The place is driving her out of her mind. She feels like an 80 year old, but she's only 19. Well, truth be told, she's 16, but she's been lying about her age so long, she's almost come to believe she's 19 herself. Belinda's boutique has nothing in it she'd ever want to buy. There's no Belinda, just Mrs. Mackey, a corseted glamour puss with bad teeth. 30 quid a week is all she pays mags for sitting in a god-awful shop that smells of cheap air freshener, pretending the clothes look good on the few women who come in to try them on and putting up with Tracy, the other shop assistant. There are no perks of the job either. Mrs. Mackey is so mean, she closed the shop for a day when Pope John Paul II visited Ireland earlier in the year and trotted off with her husband to Galway to see him. But she made Mags work an extra day the following week to make up for the day off. She'd given Mags the job without asking for references or even asking how old she was. If Mags had been asked, she'd have had to lie. Mrs. Mackey's told them they can listen to RT Radio 2 or else play the easy listening cassette tapes she's chosen for the shop. Phil Coulter, Acker Bilk and the crap like that. Mags has a few decent mixtapes hidden in a drawer. Elvis Costello, the Ramones, the Undertones. But Tracy is forever switching off her tapes and turning on the radio instead. RT Radio only plays awful rubbish like Olivia Newton-John, Cliff Richard, an Irish country and western and it's nearly as bad as the easy listening tapes. The more times Mags has to spend in this shop, the more she hates it. Mags can't even sit on the crummy staff toilet now because Tracy told her last week that she was suffering from genital warts. Tracy is not her slag, even though she still goes to mass and her taste in music is horrendous. Tracy is someone whose guts Mags feels she can legitimately hate, although she doesn't have to have legitimate reasons to hate people. She hates Tara, her housemate as well, because Tara is so fucking nice it drives her crazy. Anyway, this, like so many other situations that Mags has found herself in since she left home a year ago, is only a temporary one. Mags is saving up for her escape which is difficult on her pissy little wage, for sure, but someday soon she'll get away. It's unfortunate that it's taking longer than she'd hoped, because she keeps having to buy more clothes and spend money on essentials, like going to the Paradise Club every Saturday night. Without the Paradise Club to look forward to, though, she'd never be able to manage the rest of the week. Mags turns off the radio and shoves a mixtape in the cassette player. Elvis Costello watching the detectives and she turns it up loud. Tracy protests. You know, Mrs. Mackey says, if you don't shut up, I'll tell Mackey about the warts on your cunt, says Mags, and dances around the shop floor until the clock shows 5.30 on the dot. The small crooked house that Mags shares with Tara is one of a row of badly built old houses that strain against each other on the side of a hill. They might as well be living on top of a mountain, Mags often thinks. The way the wind curls through the faulty window frames and around the edges of the doors. To keep warm, she has three choices. Wear lots of clothes, put up with the life-threatening fumes of an old oil heater, or light the gas oven in the kitchen and leave the oven door open. It's a bitter cold winter and Mags has been drinking gallons of cocoa. There's something about the warm, chocolatey smell that comforts her. 
The house is so lopsided that when she puts a saucepan of milk on the ancient New World stove, it looks as if the milk will pour itself straight back out again, and so the milk boils over often. When it does, as it often does, her heart sinks at the thought of scrubbing the flaky milk skin off the elderly hob yet again. Mag spends a lot of time hand-washing her clothes. Her hands are getting sore from it, so she bought hand lotion for the first time recently, a Trixo with a lemony smell. But it reminded her of her mother, so she put it away and bought a pair of marigold rubber gloves instead. She spends a lot of time ironing too. It's like a disease, this constant washing and ironing. There's no wardrobe in her bedroom, so Mags has screwed hooks on every spare bit of wall and a few in the ceiling to put hangers on. Everything except the clothes she's wearing is swaying on those hooks. Everything, including her scarves, floats around the room. She'd never admit it to anyone, but it's beginning to freak her out. The room looks as if a lot of people have hanged themselves in it. She's determined to create the perfect wardrobe on very little money. She's planning to leave at short notice as soon as she has enough cash and when she does, she doesn't want to be caught on the hop. She's just going to slide her clothes into her suitcase and run to her future life. It's so cold this evening that Mags practically runs all the way back to Dominic Street but she's still frozen to the bone by the time she reaches the crooked house. She unlocks the front door and breezes into the kitchen, propelled by a gust of icy wind so strong she has to shove the door closed against it. A cold sausage lies in the frying pan on top of the old hob, stuck in a pool of grease-white fat, but though Mags is hungry, it doesn't look appealing. Instead, she puts milk in a saucepan, and while she waits for it to heat, she finds her mug and dumps a spoonful of cocoa powder into it. Then she hears a knock on the door, followed by the clattering of the letterbox. She has a good mind to pretend she isn't in. It's not the first time Tara has locked herself out, but that's usually at night after the pub. Tara suggested hanging a key off a string so you could pull it through the letterbox, but Mags said it wasn't safe, so they hadn't. Mags darts the few steps to the door and opens it, saying, Fuck's sake, Tara, don't say you've lost your keys again as she dashes back to save the milk. But it's already boiling over, so she grabs the saucepan off the hob and puts it in the sink and curses. Mags, long time no see, says a man's voice, and her heart sinks. Barry Patmore has stepped into the kitchen, and as Mags turns, he pushes the door closed behind him. The old fart stands there with the same round babyish face, heavy-lidded eyes and calm, lizardy smile she knows so well. His big tweed coat is open, despite the cold, and his navy v-neck jumper stretches tight round his belly above his brown corduroy trousers. Max has never seen him wear anything else but brown elephant cords, except for the blue three-piece suit he wears to work. She hasn't seen him since she left home more than a year ago. And his voice is still as calm as it had been then in the background of her mother's screeching. What you doing here? Mags asks, 
cork is way too small. She should have known he'd find out where she lived sooner or later. Your poor mother wants to know, are you all right? Butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. Anyone who doesn't know him would believe his concern to be real. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Elizabeth Reapy to you all um, this afternoon. Uh, Liz is uh, an Irish writer whose debut novel, Dirt, came out in 2016 and won the Borthgosh Energy Newcomer of the Year Award. Uh, she also uh, was awarded the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. Um, she's been uh, the Dublin UNESCO City of, of Literature Writer in Residence in 2017-2018. Uh, and um, she's won numerous other awards, um, which are too long to mention here. We're absolutely thrilled and excited that she's here today, particularly because she's going to read from her new novel, Skin. And this is the first reading of her novel, which is not yet out, but which is coming out this year, 2019. Um, so please give a warm welcome for Elizabeth Reapy. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for having me here. Um, I'm just going to read um, the, uh, an extract from a piece called The Left Doctors. Kim and Pete decide that it's time I seek a love like theirs. We're sharing a lazy Saturday meal, sourdough loaf, mackerel curry, and a big bowl of mixed Russian salad. Pete pours us a glass of Merlot each. February light spills through the open window, and after the grief stricken winter, the succulent plant on the sill shoots bright new green leaves in all directions. Birdsong harmonises with the city's din. A far-off pneumatic drill cracks the stone of a footpath. Lunchtime traffic accumulates at lights, kids laughing and crying and shouting, 18 moods a minute. Go on and ah, Kim says enthusiastically. Pete adds, don't overthink it. Kim asks them to play a song. He plugs his phone into the speaker and puts on a Drake playlist on low volume. He nuzzles her neck and they sway together to the beach. I take a sip of wine and hold it on my tongue, consider things. It's not that they're smug in their comfortable four-year-strong relationship, in their let's-stay-in ways, their muffling groans lest I hear them through my box room wall. They just want me to be happy, as happy as they are. Find yourself some action, Natalie, Kim says. Why not? It's 2016 after all. Can't a woman seek a willing man in the cyber world? Hookups, Netflix and chill, it's all the rage. She says she'd be at it too if she hadn't Pete. He says he'd be at it too if he hadn't Kim. A chill breeze rolls in through the open window, lifting the neck curtain in the kitchen. I rub the goosebumps on my arm, pull my sleeves down. I suppose it would be nice to meet someone, I see. It's been a long time since I had any semblance of a romance. You can't beat it, Kim says, and kisses Pete's head. He gives her a swift smile. Before we finish eating, I download an app on my phone and open my laptop on the kitchen table to scroll through my social media account for decent pictures. Kim gathers the dishes and scrapes the leftover curry into Tupperware. Pete doles out two scoops of mint chocolate ice cream into bowls for each of us. I suppose I have to make it look like I have a wonderful and varied lifestyle, I say, <laughs> and scratch my head. Use that one as your main picture, Kim says, pointing at a portrait of me laughing. It's beautiful. I look like a loose heifer in it. Do you know how insulting it is when you won't take a compliment? Kim asks, 
sorry. I had a group picture from my cousin's wedding, one where I wore a navy, navy jumpsuit and hairpiece and stood in the back row. Delete that, Nat, Pete says. Why? It's too hard to tell which one you are, your family looks alike, and you need to put in a full body one. What? Why? So there's no surprises, trust me. A bit of cleavage would go a long way too. Kim slaps his hand playfully. He loads the dishwasher and Kim wipes down the counter and the table. I scan through the app. It's pretty shallow. There's lots of headless, topless men who are looking for fun, here for fun, just trying to find some fun. The bare torso fun police. Pete takes his phone out of the speakers and the room is silent except for the slosh and pump of the dishwasher. I look up to see the kitchen sparkling. We're off to town, Natalie. Gonna have a browse in the shops before Pete starts work. Catch you later. I nod at them and flick through profiles again, trying to guess what a man could be like from the handful of photos and one sentence tagline he chose to present himself. The room grows dimmer and dimmer until it's hard to see. I check the time. Two hours since Kim and Pete left. My thumb aches from repetitive swiping motion. My vision is blurred and squaring. This is exhausting. I decide to put my phone away on the next fella that I click yes to. Vincent is his name. He's a bearded, sandwich type. He smiles broadly and drinks a bottle of root beer as he sits leaning against a tree. His profile says he likes times past, open-minded people, and that he's much too old-fashioned for this type of gallivant. However, if I like perusing his profile to marry up his day and give him a right swipe, there's something about him. Maybe it's the shoulders, the muscle tone through his blazer. He probably likes Vietnamese coffee, craft beers, and all things decreed cool by edgy podcasters and indie magazines. Still, his profile is more intriguing than a dick pic. I swipe right, put my phone on charge, and go for a walk around the block to touch base with the real world again. A couple of hours later, Kim and I channel surf and graze on popcorn when my phone vibrates. Notification, it's a match. Vincent likes me back. I feel flushed with excitement. What do I do now? I ask him. Message him. Should I wait? He says he's old-fashioned. How old-fashioned is he if he's on Tinder? Seriously. I compose and delete a few messages. I don't know how to initiate. How do I do it? You type out hi. That's all, Natalie. I take some deep breaths and type hi. It looks so awkward and needy. Two little letters, boring and plain. Nothing to go with them. Nowhere to go after them except for another. Hi. Then what? Then would I have to come up with something else? I delete it inside. Kim flicks the station to a Saturday night chat show. A bunch of movie stars sit on a couch. The excitable audience cheers any time any of the stars speak about anything. I jump when my phone buzzes. A message from Vincent. How now, fair lady? I clamp my hands to my chest. Kim laughs at me and at him. Stop, Kim, I get too embarrassed. Okay, okay, I won't say anything, except don't reply too quickly. I watch the rest of the show with her, not paying attention to any of its mumble-woo. When it ends, I wait for the weather forecast and say goodnight and go upstairs. I lie on the single bed in my tiny bedroom and reply to Vincent. We have a nice flow in our conversation. We over and back until midnight. In the coming days, I find myself looking forward to his messages and enjoy thinking of responses to them. I am filled with anticipation and nerves at the prospect of meeting him when he finally asks me out. He's nearly five years older than me and very, very quirky. 
I haven't had sex in 37 months. <laughs> Elizabeth, um, I've known you a long time now, and it's uh, you've come such a long way from editing the 30 under 30 um, short story collection uh, way back in what year was it? Oh gosh, it's like 2012. It might have been 2012, yeah. Um, and one of the things you write about so brilliantly and so sensitively is um, the uh, the inner lives of young women. And um, what I also uh, really admire about you is how you've uh, talked to us earlier about um, your own nervousness when you um, have to appear in public and read. It's a funny thing, isn't it, for writers who spend so much time on their own to have to come out, turn up, and read in front of an audience and be very much in the public eye. And, uh, and now that you're, uh, you've won so many awards over the past few years, do you find it any easier than you originally experienced it? Oh gosh, this could be a long answer. Um, <laughs> I do because I've gone for loads of help with it, um, because it was, it was such an extreme nervousness that I was feeling. And it, it never kind of improved over the years. I could practice enough that I could read steadily, but the nerves were very intense. And I went to a sort of version of hypnotherapy after the book awards. And, um, and then I got really interested in that and I trained as a hypnotherapist then. So <laughs> just, uh, yeah. So it's, there's still sometimes I do get nervous, um, but I have a lot of, a lot more skills for myself to, to calm myself down. And then, yeah, it's unlocked a lot of um, doors for me. And, kind of brought me to different places. So it's been interesting because, uh, you know, my biggest fear has turned out to be something, a kind of a great opportunity and something really fascinating now. When this guy starts shouting, Puss, Puss, you'll be run over. Come here, Puss, come here. Well, I'm ignoring the guy. It's not as if I'm a kitten. I'm a four-year-old cat and know all about traffic. But then I get the smell of cat food, and sure enough, the guy has a cannabis in his hand. He's holding that nose level. My nose level, I mean. Well, that's different. What cat is going to turn down a free meal? I twitch my tail and walk slowly in the direction of my second breakfast. I even rub my side against the guy's leg and purr a bit to let him know that I'm happy to be friendly with anyone who gives me food. Big mistake. He scoops me up, clamps me under his arm, and throws me into his car. I think of making a fuss and scratching him with my claws. Oh, but that food smells so good. So, I decide to play along. Why not? We cats are pretty adventurous, and it's nice to see new people and places. I remember the first time I left home. Now, that was fun. I got up to all sorts of mischief, had great fights, and ate lots of food given to me by people who thought I was a poor, starving cat. I'm very good at just sitting there during the week, looking sad, lost, hungry, and homeless. But after a week, I got bored and went home. Boy, did the family make a fuss of me? 
For a week it was chicken for one meal and fish for the next. They gave me real milk with real cream in it. I was in cat heaven until Millie said, Come, it wasn't good for cats. <laughs> Millie is nine years old and thinks she knows everything. She also said I was starting to get fat from eating too much and not getting enough exercise. If she was a cat, I'd tear her to pieces. <laughs> but I got my own back on her. I peed in her bed one morning. Her mother thought Millie had wet the bed during the night and shouted at her when she came home from school. <sighs> it was such fun to hear the two of them screaming at each other. But to get back to today, there I am, sitting in this guy's car, waiting to be fed. But what does he do? He closes the top of the can and puts it into a bag and dries off. Now that's what I call mean. Only one thing to do, so I do it. I curl up and pretend to be asleep. After a while, the car stops. I think I make a run for it when the guy opens the door, but he's clever. He gets out his side, closes the door quickly, comes to my side, opens the door quickly, and before I can move, he scoops me up again, and again I'm clamped under his arm. Gee, this guy really is a great scooper rubber. We go into his house. No chance of getting away because he closes the door before putting me down. Suddenly, there are people and voices, and it's all about me. A nice lady says how handsome I am. Well, I am. I can take lots of that kind of talk. I know I'm a very good-looking tabby, but it's always nice to hear other people saying it. And now, better than all the nice talk, I finally get a bowl of that delicious food. Yummy! The nice lady says to the guy, Oh, look at the poor darling. He must be starving. Like most cats, I'm a slow eater, but when I hear the word starving, I decide to gobble the food in the hope that I get a second helping. And I do. Gosh, I'm stuffed now. But that doesn't stop me enjoying a saucer of creamy milk. A good job Millie isn't here. Now they've put a blanket on the sofa and the nice lady gently lifts me up and places me on it. Just then, a girl they call Doris arrives home from school. She looks the same age as Millie. She's just as nasty. The family act all excited about me and expect her to be excited too. She glares at me. I know she hates me. You're going to keep the thing? She asks. I am shocked. I am not a thing. I am a proud tabby cat. <laughs> yes, says the nice lady. And we're going to call him Silas, says the guy. Silas, says the horrible girl. She stares at me. The name really suits him. He's a rotten, miserable, fat slob of a thing. And she leaves the room and slams the door. Wow, I think. She's so lucky she's not a cat I tear her to pieces. But it's nice and warm on the blanket and I decide to do some serious thinking. I am shocked that they want to keep me and very unhappy about being called Silas. Silas? What a rubbish name. My name is Flendrick and that's that. All this thinking makes me very tired and I fall asleep without noticing and dream of mice. I'm almost cross when sudden noises wake me up, so you can imagine how angry I am when my sleep is broken by loud shouts and lost children storming into the room. They kneel down in a circle and start shouting and screaming at something inside it. I'm curious. I must see what it is. I managed to squeeze in between two of the children to find out what's causing all the excitement. And would you believe it? They are screaming at a strange little mouse with shiny white skin. 
They are screaming and pushing it away, but it keeps running from one edge of the circle to the other, and the children keep screaming and pushing it. I know at once it is my job to save them from this mouse. I jump to the circle and grab it. And what a shock I get. Its skin is not soft. It is very hard. And I am afraid it could break my teeth. And I am very proud of my teeth. Imagine how surprised I am when they start screaming at me. And the horrible Doris actually smacks me and says, Drop it, Silas! Drop it! But I drop it all right. And I scratch Doris's hand with my claws. <laughs> she screams. The door opens and the guy and the nice lady come running in. Silas scratch me! shrieks horrible Doris. Take it to the edge and have it destroyed! Well, I'm not stupid. I can see that the guy and the nice lady have suddenly stopped loving me. I also see that the door is open and I run out. I am so happy to see the street door is also open. I run and run and hooray, I'm free! I run until I can't run anymore. I sit down to catch my breath. And that's when a small black dog comes running out of a house, barking his silly head off at me. Now normally I wouldn't be afraid of a small dog and would give him a smack on the nose with my paw to teach him a lesson. But this little chap seems to want to really fight. Lucky for me, I'm next to a tree. I climb up it and sit on a branch. The dog goes on yapping until his owner comes out, grabs him by the scruff of the neck, brings him into the house and slams the door. I think my troubles are over, but I nearly fall off my branch when a bird squawks in my ear. I look up at the branch above mine. There's a nest with baby birds and the big mother bird is doing the squawking and I get the message. This tree for birds only, no cats allowed. I jump down before the big bird can attack me. I've no sooner landed than two Yorkshire Terriers start chasing me. Their fat owner shouts at them to come back, but they don't. I jump up on the front gate pillar and stare down at them, twitching my tail. The dogs are going crazy. I love it. I notice the garden gate is closed, so I jump down into the garden. The barking of the dogs behind me is sweet music to my ears. And now, I know where I am. A few hedges and garden fences later, I'm home. I meow at the back door. My owner lets me in. Flendrick, where have you been, she says, if only she knew. I'm hungry again. I meow sadly. She gives me a bowl of food. The perfect ending to my busy day. <laughs> My name is Deirdre Kingston and this is an extract from a story called Catch and Release. The whole fishing thing started two weeks after Luke and I finished the junior cert. His mother came home from work for the third day running to find us watching Netflix in a house that smelt of stale socks and pizza. Luke's mam is a short woman, short hair, short temper, short fingernails. Do something useful, she said. Go and clear out the shed. The fridge door slammed shut and the kitchen filled with the sound of a can fizzing over. There's ten euro in it between you and you can sell anything of your father's that you find in there. Ah, shite, Luke said and flicked off the telly. Luke's father went off with a young one he met at the jazz two years ago. She's Lithuanian and has arms on her like a butcher. 
Luke says she can only cook egg white omelettes and she keeps the fridge full of pickled cabbage. So he stops staying weekends with his dad once he turns 16. He never talks about his dad now. I followed Luke to the back door. He and I have been friends ever since we fought in Montessori over a three-wheeled truck that nobody else wanted. Luke's mother doesn't mind me spending much time with him, even though my mother says I should hang around with some of the girls from school. My mother goes to all my younger brother's soccer matches with a pair of Gucci sunglasses nailed to the top of her head like a tiara. And she pretends not to love it when people say my brother will be discovered by Man United any day now. Luke's mam's shed was full of the usual shit, paint cans, bits of things that belonged with other things, things that came from Luke's nan's house after she died. And down the back, like someone was trying to hide it, we found his father's fishing gear. A big box filled with new fishing tackle, some still in the packets, hooks, weights, fishing gut, and best of all, two rods that looked like they had never been used. We sell them on Dundee, Luke said, but his brother Connor told him we get nothing for stuff like that. Connor is three years older than Luke. After their father moved in with the Lithuanian one, Connor dropped out of school for a while, but next year he's repeating the leaving cert and he's working for the summer. Tell you what you do now, Connor said, rolling up a cigarette with one hand. There's a fella down the city end of Barrack Street, the fish and chip shop that's paying 20 euro a go for a bag of pollock. The next morning, we went down to the river where it flows at the bottom of the Grand Parade near Parliament Bridge and spent two hours throwing in lines. Around the time we started to think of flinging the rods and the whole lot in over the railings and heading home for a bit to eat, an old fellow who was watching us from the opposite bank came over the bridge. What kind of bait have you, he said, and poked a finger around in the fishing box. You'll catch nothing up this end of the river. This tackle is only for sea fishing. Well, my dad caught loads with it down the bee fields, Luke said. Trout, salmon, every kind of thing. Did he know, the old fella said, and looked Luke up and down, like he was examining a plate of sandwiches. Well, he didn't catch them with anything in the box. What fish are you after, anyway? Pollock, I said. The old fella emptied the, out the little compartments and the drawers in the top of the box, then closed the lid. He laid out weights and long hooks with metal fringes that reminded me of dangly earrings. He said they were called lures, and he rigged up the two fishing rods. Then he showed us how to cast. The trick, he said, was to dangle the hook over the water, steady the weight, and then cast off with a fast flick of the wrist. After a few tries, we got the hang of it. Then the old fella told Luke to go over to the English market to buy a half a dozen mackerel for bait, but I went instead, because Luke never goes into the market. The Lithuanian girlfriend works inside there at a stand selling imported groceries. Jars of carrots and jars of sausages that looked like dead men's fingers. When I came back from the market, the old fella told us we should go down to Horgan's Quay at the back of the railway station because the place would be teeming with Pollock. He was right. The river was different down in Horgan's Quay. It was thick as packet soup and looked like it would suck you in and drag you to the bottom before spitting you out again. It smelt of seaweed, old clothes, other places, and in less than an hour we had five pollock caught, three big ones and two small ones that maybe we should have thrown back in again while they were still alive. 
The fish came up out of the water, twisting and turning, fighting with the hooks. We laid them on the key wall and watched them suffocate. And afterwards, Luke cut the hooks out of them. He doesn't mind any of that. Blood, things dying. When their dog died, he was the one who dug a hole at the end of the garden, while Connor stayed up in his room. Fiction at the Friary and on campus was presented by Madeleine Darcy and Danielle McLaughlin. Location introductions by J.P. Quinn. Produced by Kieran Hurley for UCC 98.3 FM. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.